Duck Camp makes outdoor goods so you can outdoor good. From the shallow water flats to the mallard-filled marshes, Duck Camp is there to make you feel comfortable and enhance the quality of your time in the elements. Not only do they make some of the best outdoor apparel on the market, but they support many of the organizations near and dear, fighting for a resource in the natural world. Check them out at duckcamp.com and tell them we sent you. Whether on the boat, on the river, or in the woods, Yeti products are by our side. There are many innovative first-class companies in the outdoor market today, but none more so than Yeti. In 2006, they took the industry by storm when they produced their first roto-molded cooler that was reliable and built for the wild. 17 years later, with a multitude of new products, they continue to raise the bar and be the gold standard for all outdoor brands. We couldn't be more proud to have them as a Millhouse sponsor and a family member. In 2016, billions of gallons of polluted water ingested with toxic algae were released out of Lake Okeechobee into the St. Lucie and Caloosahatchee rivers, emptying into the Atlantic Ocean and the Gulf of Mexico. It killed everything that were exposed to it, from dolphins down to the smallest bait fish, including great game fish like tarpon and snook. Even local riverside communities suffered the effects of this deadly water. Then, two fishing guides, Chris Whitman and Daniel Andrews, quit their jobs and created Captains for Clean Water. They grew an army of voices to challenge the status quo and hold policymakers and water managers accountable. This is an important podcast, and it's an honor to have Chris on the show today. We broke everything. We broke lines. We broke hooks. We broke rods. We broke our minds. We broke marriages. We broke the whole thing. We uh, came up with the idea of going out that night and chasing girls, and whoever had the biggest pair of panties won the pot. I knocked another arrow, and he turned around the other way, and I shot him going through the other way. So I double-lunged him both ways. But it was nothing for us to paddle an air mattress out into government cut. I got him on. All right, now we're going to teach him a lesson. I'm just an old guy that likes to fish. I'm not quitting yet. And he said, well, who the hell do you think you are, Sue App? And I said, that's exactly who I am. Life's journey to the grave should not be one arriving with a pretty, well-preserved body, but rather skid in broadside in a cloud of smoke, thoroughly torn out, thoroughly used up, proclaiming wildly, wow, what a ride. (laughs) There's something fishy going on here. Chris, it's uh, such an honor to have you over here. Um, Nikki and I are fishermen. Obviously, you're a captain. You and Daniel Andrews basically were the ground floor of captains for clean water. You saw the destruction, the mass destruction, and the need to do something. You guys are giants in the world of conservation. And when at some point in this conversation, 
you know, we're going to talk about captains and the evolution and what you guys did to kill SB 2508, that bill that was going to destroy all the work that was previously previously built. But um, let's just go back to your early life in Florida. You're, you know, four generation Floridian uh, resident, uh, native. What was your early life like growing up in Florida? Oh man! Well, first of all, thank you for having me in your home and oh. on the program here. It's it's an honor. I I listen to this religiously. And <laughs> well, thank you to to get to join the ranks of the people you've had on here is an, an honor. So thank you guys for well, for that. You, you, bet. you are right at the top, man. <laughs> your story deserves to be heard, and uh, we got to grow the, the the movement. We do. We are. Yeah. Um, no, you know, growing up as a kid. Um, I don't think you ever have perspective on your childhood until you get to look back on it. You know, it's just, it's your world when you're a kid. And so I grew up on an Island, Sanibel Island, uh, off the coast of Fort Myers. And, um, my mom prior to, to that grew up on Fort Myers beach, the next Island South. And, you know, she had, she had a pet dolphin that lived in a massive saltwater pool. I mean, that's just like a totally different way of life. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, my whole life, was was outdoors it was on the water in the water in the woods you know i think i probably had poison ivy for the first 15 years of my life straight (laughs) that's the worst (laughs) yeah but um but oh man it was it was island life it was freedom you know i got to left the house in the morning on a skateboard or a bicycle and didn't get home until it was dark and somewhere in between there you know water was involved and fish and the outdoors and alligators and you know i had the same life growing up in in the mountains in in aspen it was fishing and skiing fishing all summer skiing all winter and then eventually you started doing the hunting thing Mm -hmm. but i noticed in one of the notes you sent over you said that you like to hunt more than fish yeah if i had to choose and thank goodness i don't have to choose but if i had to choose i would definitely i would rather hunt than fish and what do you hunt for uh, I hunt probably mostly for turkeys, but I hunt for turkeys. I hunt for uh, deer, I hunt for ducks, waterfowl. And then most recently I got to go elk hunting for my, for my first time. Yeah. You talk about karma. Yeah, the, the, okay. <laughs> the here we, here we elk go. I've ever this seen. guy has done so much for uh, conservation. You've got this big cloud and aura all around your body that you can never do any wrong. <laughs> Only good is going to come to you. I think my first... mom would uh, disagree with you on that. <laughs> you know, your first DIY, you know, elk cut in, out in Montana. Wyoming. Wyoming. Wyoming yeah. yeah, you kill like a 375 <laughs> giant. Yeah, that was, uh, I'm still, I still don't even know. I, it's still hard to like process that one. It wasn't very Do long. Do you have ago. it up in your house right now? Not yet. I'm waiting for it to get there. Yeah. You're going to have to build a bigger house. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no kidding. So, so why, why do you think you like hunting more than fishing? Um, I, I think the, the challenge of it, you know, I, I grew up, I've, I've been fishing as long as I can remember. I mean, I have pictures of me fishing before I can, you know, I don't know, I was two years old, like before I can remember. So I, I think just there's a greater sense of challenge or unknown right. with uh, hunting for me. Um, and that's really what drives me. And and also a lot of it is also is to me like hunting and fishing is as much or more about where the pursuits take place than mm-hmm. the actual sure. action. Right. And, um, and look, my waters have changed a lot since my childhood. There's a lot more people 
a lot more pressure. And um, so, you know, especially through the guiding career, it's like there's times where being on the water, you have aggravating experiences mm -hmm. um, because of etiquette or, you know, or things out of your control. And, and, and yes, that can happen hunting as well. But I think the mixture of those two things, it's, it's still a little more wild and uh, haven't perfected it as much as I felt like I had perfected fishing and a um, lot more opportunity to learn still in hunting and and also just those those areas especially out west man i freaking love it out west but you've you've done some guiding hunting mm -hmm. do those mm -hmm. aggravations in fishing guiding does that transfer over to hunting guiding or not, is it yeah not as much um mostly with the fishing stuff it's like i would never get aggravated with the client well for the most part yeah <laughs> it was there might be a few outliers but it was more so with like other people other people on the water you know, not conducting themselves the way they should. Um, so with the hunting, the guiding that I've done hunting, um, is primarily, primarily around Osceola turkeys. And I've done some, you know, hogs and deer and stuff like and that. And that's with Florida outdoor experience. It is, yeah. With cool. Gray. Um, but with that, I mean, it's a very controlled environment. We've right. got a very tight network of guides that work with us. Everybody has their program dialed in. We work together. Um, there's nobody screwing you up except for, you know, yourself or the turkeys. And so, no, you don't, you know, we're on, we're on private lands and leased lands and stuff like that. So no, that doesn't really carry that same level of kind of, damn, we just worked for an hour to, sure. to get on these fish, right. And then this, and this guy cut ran me by off. And yeah. blew it all up. Yeah. What, uh, what fish do you mostly gravitate to? tarpon but it's a year but you're as a captain you were fishing year round so it, it would yeah. evolve with the seasons yeah and it evolved with my uh career and my experience also as a kid i was like a snook fisherman you know i fished the mouth of the river for giant snook and um so in the beginning of my guide career it definitely was more primarily like big river mouth snook and and redfish more so than it was tarpon and then i kind of transitioned into red fishing moving away from shorelines and trees and more into open flats and um perfecting kind of that sight fishing game and and then as my career progressed and i progressed as an angler and my clientele changed from you know a tourist who wanted to go fishing one day when they were here to people who were crafting their entire trip around multiple days of fishing then, then that changed and my focus began to, to shift. And, and towards the end of my career, it was primarily, you know, tarpon and, and some permit offshore on our racks. And, and in the fall, big, big schools of redfish. You're also a diver. Yeah. Tell me about your diving experience. You, you said you, you, you dove in the Boca Grande Pass. Pahia Honda. Pahia Honda. Yeah. Tell us about that. Yeah. Um, yeah. I've, I've, Growing up, I've spent a ton of time in the water, you know, and, and so I've done a ton of spear fishing, and um, mostly here around Florida. So, you know, not the clearest water necessarily, not all in the Keys, you know, west coast of Florida, it's some mm -hmm. murky water. And, and certain tides have dirtier water. Certain tides, yep. But um, so I really enjoy that. Um, interestingly, when I, I tournament fished for a number of years, and... In that it was it was red fishing, um, 
and so in that world of competitive tournament red fishing, I was constantly trying to look at like, what, what could I do to give me myself an edge up on the rest of the field of these other 50 teams? And so one of the things I figured out that traveling around the Gulf coast from Texas all the way to Florida was that deep water redfish were less affected by changes in environment. So like temperature, cloud cover, things like that. And so I started to figure out how to tack, how to, um, dial in deep fishing for redfish in 20, 30 feet of water. And that started in, in the panhandle of Florida where I started bringing scuba gear and diving some of the bridges to find big redfish schools that were holding on channel edges. And, uh, and it worked. So you were trying to figure out where they lived down there? Where they lived, where they held on what part of the tide in order to then roll in and jig for them. And target them. 20, 30 feet of water. And it didn't matter if it was blowing five knots or 25 knots. They were holding on certain parts of the bridge during certain parts of the tide. And so that's really what got me diving uh, Boca mm-hmm. Grand Pass was wanting to figure out those fish. I started just looking at diving, not just as a recreational thing to spearfish, mm-hmm. but I started looking at it as a way to learn about fish behavior in their home and yeah. go down into their home. Before we go there, because I got a couple of questions about the passes. How did your results change by that information in, in the tournaments? Um, did you start winning a lot? Yeah. In, in like the redfish tournaments, mm-hmm. it, yeah, it, um, it just gave me better, um, more options, more, uh, more kind of insulated me to environmental conditions changes so that even if maybe that wasn't where I was going to get my winning fish, maybe I had much heavier fish in the marsh that mm-hmm. I was sight fishing. But if I had a fallback where if the weather blew up and that sight fishing game went away, which was very natural to me as a Florida, you know, sight fishing guide, if that went away, I had these fallbacks to go fish, you know, deep water jetties. And, and, and even though I, you know, would definitely paint myself as a sight fisherman and that's my strong suit, um, in those tournaments, the tournaments that I, you know, started to really excel in were ones where I went and ground out fish in deep water when other teams were struggling. It was the sonar not as good back then. You couldn't see him on the sonar. Yeah. You know, the, one of the funny thing is, so no, it wasn't as good. It definitely, you definitely did not have what we have today with like the imaging, the side imaging, things right. like that. Um, but <laughs> It's funny, one of the first times that I really did that, I was in Galveston, Texas, and there's a huge jetty that runs miles out from Galveston Bay. And so you're talking about something that's miles long of structure that falls off, you know, from the jetty coming out of the water that falls all the way off to 20 feet deep. Somewhere along there, it holds fish, but it's like where and when and all that. I actually dialed that in, and when we did that, I didn't even have a uh, bottom machine and GPS on my boat. The one, I mean, I was like, it was in the early part of my career. I think it broke or something. So I was just out there and I remember getting on a bite off the ledge and triangulating this rock to that tower mm. to, the, to, to find the position of where I was in that four miles so I could repeat and go back to that same spot. Interesting. And, um, and I, I think after the, the second day. So you, those format of those redfish cup tournaments was you fish two days full field and then the top five teams move on to the third and final day. 
to fish for the the big prize. And so the second day um, of that tournament, I, I was in that top five, and one of the electronics manufacturers that was at the tournament was like heard about what we were doing like wait a minute you're triangulate like hold on and they put a they put a unit on her boat over overnight so we could look at the fish (laughs) they felt bad for you yeah oh man before you retired as a guide and became working full-time for captains were were you uh were you kind of like refining the sonar stuff because i see a lot of people fishing you know with sonar yeah and and the question here is you know to the field as a whole the offshore guys use it to find fish what about the people who are using drones even though what you were doing was not drone fishing although with the tarpon you could probably find fish with drones how do you feel about that because the ethics of of fishing they don't have very much camouflage other than the water itself. Mm-hmm. Do you think there's a point where it's crossed over to the point where it's kind of unfair for the for the yeah you know, the challenge of finding fish? Yeah, and I think I would probably have answered the question differently 15 years ago. Just you know because, but yeah, I do um, for a number of reasons. Not just yes, partially for the fish. Like we're making some the thing, same thing that. It, that is such an allure to hunting for me is, is the challenge. Right. And so we're taking a lot of that away, the greater the technology increases. And I think that that, um, results in a greater amount of pressure on the fisheries and on the fish, but I think it robs the angler of quite a bit. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't think if I didn't, if I had all those tools to depend on from when I started guiding or was a kid all the way till now, I don't believe I would have grown to be as good of angler as I was because for sure not. Yeah. You know, it's like, it's like even like navigating, like it's like some of these new charts and stuff are really valuable and it's and that part's good. Like for not having people run over grass flats and things like that. But, um, still to this day, like I don't, whenever I'm running anywhere on a boat, I'm analyzing what's going on, looking at the water, looking at the, the rips in the water, looking for birds smelling, you know, if, was there just a feed upwind of me somewhere? Like, and I think if you're driving along staring at a computer screen to get where you're going, you're missing all those things. Right. You know? So you can actually smell if there's a feed upwind of you? Oh, yeah. Yeah, because the fish are getting chewed and you're, you're yeah. smelling really? the scent. Mm-hmm. I have never smelled that. Yeah. Probably because I don't have that sense. Yeah, no. You, because, you because we can't find any fish. <laughs> <laughs> no, you can't. It has to be a substantial feed. It's not like yeah. a, a trout. It's got to be like a blitz. And it just offshore. smells. It but, just smells like fish. Blitz. Yeah, especially with um, you can you can do it with tarpon um, when they're out on the beach in the in the um, glass minnow schools or the white bait schools. Really? Um, I started noticing it red fishing out in in the big bays in in Texas and Louisiana, and um, a lot of guys were onto that then you'd, you'd run across these bays and you'd look for slicks with birds on them, gulls on them and turns on them. And that was pogey schools that were being crushed by a school of, you know, five, 600 redfish. And you could go in there and just call through fish. And I remember one time we left where I think we we're in Katy, Texas, and we we're leaving running across uh, one of the big port bays there. And, and there was a bunch of schools of fish out in the bay and and so people were keying in in on those slicks and those birds and so we rolled out to start in the morning there's 50 boats hauling ass across the bay and 
um, my buddy and I are riding out and we're sitting there, we're throwing handfuls of saltine crackers up in the air to, to get all the birds making <laughs> fake oil slicks to, to decoy everybody. <laughs> that is hilarious. The oil slick is from, is from the, the fish being eaten, right? The oil. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the oil from the fish. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so what did you see in Boca Grande Pass? You had to have a slick tide, obviously, otherwise you'd be swept out to so sea. So I did it. Um, I did it on a pretty big uh, full moon tide, but what I did was I timed it at the end of the incoming to the beginning of the outgoing. Mm -hmm. So I had to cleaner Gulf water and I went to the uh, lighthouse hole, the Coast Guard hole, the deepest part of the pass, dropped a big anchor with chain up to an anchor ball. um, And I dropped it there knowing that's where I wanted to go down. And when I dropped it, I mean, the anchor ball was being pulled underwater because the current's so strong there. And so we idled around in the boat um, with our gear ready until that started to not get pulled so hard. This, knowing the Between the slack, between yep, the, the two tides. the end of the incoming. Yeah. And we went down that anchor line and rode the rest of that incoming tide all the way in the pass and, uh, until it started to go up into the hill. And then it's, it flipped and started to come out, and we rode it all the way back out wow. and came back up. So. What did you see down there? You know, A lot was, of tackle? Um, you know, surprisingly, we saw some, but I, that was probably the most shocking thing was how, it was much, much cleaner than I expected it to hmm. be. I don't know if like, and that was the time of the jigging. And I don't know if like those breakaways, if they dissolve or... Sand gets the, pushed over on yeah, the Yeah, the, even, but even like the amount of like line and tackle, it's just, I, it was... There was some, but it was nowhere near. Like mm-hmm. I expected, I had like multiple knives on me and stuff because I'm like, I'm going to get hung up in things down here. I need to be able to cut my way off of them. And I had wire cutters on me and everything else. And it was a lot cleaner than I thought. I think, uh, so I saw tons of, obviously, tons of tarpon. Mm-hmm. Did this at the, I think it was April, what, what April they, 19th, I think I did it. Yeah, um, what would that look like? Seeing all those fish underwater, the, oh. the, the big mass man it was massive fish. it was as far as you could see them because they you know it would just they would kind of fade off and you were still seeing tarpon and seeing their movement there was a few times where you know i'm hanging on kind of the ledges i'd get down on a ledge to where i was the current was breaking over me looking up at the tarpon and there was a few times where like everything would leave and I'm going like, oh shit. <laughs> Where's the hammerhead? Yes. <laughs> Where's the bull sharks? Where's the man? Um, yeah, I mean, everything would leave. I mean, the, the grouper and stuff would go up under the ledges. The tarpon would go, and you're going, mm. What uh, was it? You? It was big sharks. It just, oh, they were there. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you would just kind of barely see them. They would, they would stay, you know, on those outskirts. But it was cool, man. The, the, it was one of the coolest dives terrain wise that I've done. Big big ledges that were really, really undercut that went back into caves that would then blow out the top part of the ledges like a chimney and would blow shells all the way to the surface. Oh, and wow. It's really, really cool. Bunch of gags, bunch of like 30-inch gag grouper and a bunch of giant sheep's head, hogfish. That's and, fascinating. And what did you learn down there that was going to help your fishing? Um, more so where, how they hung um, in relation to the bottom. Mm-hmm. And where how they were using that current to hold hold in place, and you know a lot of times looking at like your bottom machine, you you think that like they're it looks like they're really holding real tight down under those ledges, but they're actually like stacking up over them, um, like they're using the current off of each other mm-hmm. to break kind of like a flock of birds flying through the air. Interesting. Where 
you know, they're like drafting each other. Make it easier to hold mm-hmm. against the current. Yeah. Did you see the similar things at the uh, BE Honda? I did. That one, um, when I did that, it was, um, I did it for lobstering and my buddy and I would go down every year. As soon as we were old enough to drive ourselves down there, we started going on our own. And so that was more so a tactic of how do we get to areas that aren't picked over where people snorkelers can't go. People aren't willing to go cause it's a little sketchy. So we would drop in at the bridge on an outgoing tide and drift to where we were two miles offshore. Really? And we'd carry a lobster hotel for the lobsters and a, and a stringer for the fish and a you'd, spear. You'd drag a lobster t- uh, trap with you or just a, or just a, a net, a net, a net a bag, cage? like a net, a net bag, bag with a, with a PVC entrance on it that's what you call a lobster hotel yeah and uh in a in a spear gun and we'd spear fish and and lobster the whole drift out and uh we'd get some giant lobsters and shoot a bunch of hogfish and groupers and wow that was but that was an early one you know boca grand was scary and eerie because it's just deep and you know what lives in there and you've seen them bite 150 pound fish in half um uh bahia honda channel I got the wind knocked out of me by a bull shark in there trying to get to my stringer of fish. He wasn't trying to bite me. He was, he was nudging it to smell it. And he hit me so hard in the, in the side that it winded me. And so that one, I tucked myself up under a, <laughs> up under a little ledge for five minutes or so. And I would have come flying oh out of that ocean. Uh, but that, that one was, this was scarier. I think just those, those dives there. But there's, are there big grouper down there at Bihia Honda? I've always um, heard they've got some, big grouper Yeah, there. I mean, not not real big. At least the ones I saw. I saw some red groupers, and mostly what I was shooting was hogfish. Mm-hmm. Interesting. When did the t- where was the time frame of your TV show Wild Instinct Outdoors? Did you was that when you were kind of tapering down with guiding, and you wanted to start going into TV? Yeah, I wanted to look at it. Um, the way I looked at it was like the next evolution of what I wanted to do. I wanted to get back off the back of the boat and get back on the front of the boat and also go see other fisheries. And, um, did Jose have any influence on a, you? A ton, a ton. Like I literally modeled my whole career from guiding till the end of my career off of what, what Jose's stood out advice. most about Jose. Um, his willingness to share his time with people like, I met him my second year guiding. I was just, I was nobody in the industry. I was writing for a little magazine out of Tampa, Onshore Offshore Magazine, to try to get my name out there. And I was on a on a trip in the Bahamas writing about a, a bonefish lodge over there. And Jose happened to be there filming a show. And we hit it off. And he was just kind enough to to tell me, you know, give me advice on how to be successful in a career that I was just getting my feet wet. And um, he, he literally laid out how he started guiding and then how he progressed into bonefish tournaments to make a name for himself and connect and get clients and earn, perfect his craft and, um, earn respect among the other guides. And, and then how that transitioned into a Spanish TV show that then transitioned into what we all know as Spanish fly. And, um, and we, we were friends and we stayed in touch all mm-hmm. the way, you know, until his death and. Um, it was, uh, it was, I, I literally took that advice like to the T and, and did that through redfish tournaments and what was available where I lived. Um, so yeah, so the TV show for me, um, that was towards the end of my career is kind of the, right before we started captains, it was 2000, 
probably started working on it in 2013. Um, the show, we went to uh, Discovery Network in 2015. Um, and so that was kind of the next evolution. It wasn't to quit guiding totally, but it was just to add mm-hmm. another value to to what I could offer to my sponsors. And um, I think some people will be part of like TV shows or radio shows to, to bolster their guide career, right. to, ha- to get more clients. At that point with guiding, I had my clients. I wasn't taking new clients. I wasn't, I didn't need more trips. I was just looking at how do I, how do I have a sustainable career where I don't have to fish 300 and plus mm-hmm. days a year and, and wear myself? How can I do this where I maybe fish 150 of the best days and do something else the other part of the time. Were you buying your slot on TV and selling your own commercials? Yes. That's typically how it's done. Yep. I remember that show. I used to watch it all the time on YouTube. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, I loved it. I oh, appreciate that. It was, um, that was, that was a, a really, uh, um, passion project for me. The, the guys we filmed with, uh, Cavan brothers and Taylor brothers from colorblind media. They're so good. They're so good. And, and for me, I, I looked a long time to find somebody to produce the vision that I had that like got it. Because at that point in time, most of the shows were, were still very, um, the way I looked on was very like infomercial. Like mm-hmm. it was like, oh, I'm using my whatever rod to catch my, this power pro, you know, whatever. And it to me, like I just wanted people, I felt like people would pick up on what you're using and what you're doing. I just wanted the camera to be a fly on the wall and the cinematography and the experience of what I loved about that to be what was conveyed, not that I'm selling some mm-hmm. product that I'm using. And that wasn't the norm then. And, uh, and I, I, found Kevin. He was actually an intern on a shoot that I was on like years before one time. And, uh, you know, he, we, I knew of him then and he had then progressed into this. And I, I saw a few, some of his work and was like, this is, I want the focus to be cinematography. And, and I think that honestly, that show played a pretty big role in changing a lot of the way that the outdoor fishing shows are produced today there's a lot higher level of cinematography now and i think it's also because of their background in surfing and not the traditional fishing route a hundred percent i love that i love the surfing films the skate films they have a different vibe they capture the story much different than completely traditional fishing tv shows you're absolutely right yeah i think that's the biggest thing was where they came from where they started and that influence from the surf surf skate Mm -hmm. world it was so it was so refreshing to see that yeah the first big video that that cavin made that went like viral was surfing video at i think it was pump house um where it was just like cranking and they made this sick video and it went viral and i was like yeah that's yeah no they they do great work love those guys yeah did you how long did you see the environment start to slide before you guys had to had to come together and, and create captains for clean water. Uh, I think it was in 2016. It was 16 when we founded the organization. Consciously, I saw the environment sliding um, probably around around when I started guiding. So 99, 2000. That long ago. Yeah, but it wasn't it wasn't consciously like we're in trouble. 
it was like I just was seeing the symptoms. The areas that I fished as a kid prior to a guy chasing those big snook at the mouth of Caloosahatchee River, those areas weren't really productive anymore by the time I was in like my fifth year guiding. The oyster bars I fished were dead. The seagrass flats were diminishing. It was changing. And so I started to venture out of that bubble around Sanibel and venture farther north towards Boca Grande and into Pine Island Sound. And um, so I just had to work harder. Mm-hmm. And But to me at the time, I was also it was also intriguing to me because I was learning new area in my own backyard that I didn't fish as a kid in an aluminum boat. You know, it was right. so... The real, um, the real notice of like, man, things are changing and it's not good was probably, uh, probably like mid, like, like 2010, 2013 Mm -hmm. in there where I was kind of like, ah, this is, things are not good. And then very quickly from that time frame, 2013, we had a big discharge event from Okeechobee. Then again in 2016, and so that 2016 event was the one that was like, it's over. Something's got to change. Like something has to change. Did you what contact Daniel or did Daniel? Yeah. No, Daniel contacted me. I think at that, I don't. What did he say? He was maybe in like his fourth or fifth year guiding and we we knew each other from guiding. Mm-hmm. Um, but I he I think he knew me as somebody who'd, who'd had it figured out. I was, you know, I'd was fishing those, you know, redfish tournaments. I was sponsored by Hooters. I was, I had all these, I had a big program put together. And so I think he probably looked at me as like an established, like he's got it figured out. I think it was like his fourth or fifth year, but he called me. He was the one that was like, we have to do something. Um, it's kind of funny, like the new guy telling the, the guy, like I should have been the one, the guys before me should have been the ones, but we weren't. Um, but he was the one. And, um, he called and he was like, I think more than anything, he was like kind of like worried, like scared and pissed off. Do you remember the first words that referred to this out of his mouth over the phone? Um, I remember where I was standing. I was standing in my front yard and he was like, we, we've got to do something if the, we're, we're screwed, man. Like, and he, I think at that point was probably questioning his life choices. Um, he gave up a full ride scholarship to college and, you know, and, and, dropped out of school after prize first year or so to be a fishing guide. And, um, so I, I don't remember the first words, but I do remember the conversation was, we've got to do something about it. This has to stop. And I remember agreeing with him and also being like, I, I just, I don't know how we can possibly, what there is we can do about it in the world we live in. Like oh, it's so I, overwhelming. It's to think overwhelming. About. Yeah, yeah. It's like, I, dude, I don't know how we can how do you start? be fishing guides. Yeah. It was like this impossible task. Did you talk to anybody to help direct you and inspire you or mentor you as far as the conservation movement? No, not as far as the conservation movement, but to solidify that we better freaking do something. Um, one of the first people we called was Dr. Aaron Adams, who was a good friend of ours. He sure. spent a ton of time over there, lived over there part of time and um and for the people who are listening he's he's a scientist from for for, btt BTT. yeah and um great angler as well surfer like you know friend and uh i don't remember it's been 16 it's been you know seven years now i was back in 16 but but basically what he said was 
I don't know. I don't know what you guys can do, but something better happen or else you're screwed. And it was not a reassuring thing to hear from somebody we respected, like, like Dr. Adams. Agreeing. Yeah. So, um, yeah, as far as like the conservation movement thing, we didn't, what we saw, we, we, we did seek out help and rely on like experts as far as people who could explain policy to us. And Mm -hmm. it was this learning thing. Neither one of us had experience in, um, you know, organizational work, NGO work or conservation work, any of that. We're just fishing guides. And starting from a 90 year old family recipe, Wickles are wickedly delicious pickles packed with garlic and peppers, a staple in our skiff and all shoreline lunches. Originating from Sim's grandmother's kitchen to a pantry near yours, from pickles, okra, relishes, and spreads, check them out to elevate all of your meals to the next level. Papas Pilar is a spirit that embodies adventure. Named after the late great Ernest Hemingway and his boat, the Pilar, the name says it all. This ultra premium blended rum is hand selected from around the Caribbean and blended by master blender, Ron Call. After a long day on the water, when the sun is descending the sky, end on a good note with Pilar by your side. Go support them at papaspilar.com or a liquor store near you. But because we didn't have a framework or a model that we were following, we just created our own. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that is part of what makes captains different is we built something that was totally different because we didn't know what the standard was. Right. It was all all foreign. Yeah. We just saw there's a void Mm -hmm. of people like ourselves who were being impacted, were aware of a problem, who cared about a problem, and still were not involved because there was no way for us to feel like we could make an impact. And that was like tens of thousands of individual stakeholders like ourselves were in the same boat. We talked to people and they all cared and they all knew there was some problem. Some of them didn't know why it existed or that there was a solution, but there was this void. There was science saying, here's what we need to do. There was an engineering plan saying, here's how we can fix this. And then there was this gap of public pressure. Mm-hmm. And so there was no political will. And so that's that's what we started to fill that void of we're going to build the public pressure. And we what, started just through social media. Yeah, I, what, wanted, I wanted to ask real quick, that first conversation with Daniel, when you guys got off the phone, what was the first action that took place? Um, was it the Facebook group? I think we made a Facebook page. Yeah. yeah. But that got a lot of, a lot of people interested in it. Yeah, it? it like blew up like overnight. Um, What's that mean? Blow up? What kind of? Just it just it went from like just a Facebook page to all these people joining it and following the page and commenting, and it wasn't just sharing their stories. Yeah, it wasn't just fishing guides. It was like everyone. Mm -hmm. What What were you seeing on the water? I want to go back one step. And and when you were in your boat, what did it look like? What did you see that made you think, man, we're fucked? It was, um, so the area that I primarily fished out of was Ponarasa, which is at the bridge that goes to Sanibel Island, where I grew up. Mm-hmm. It's probably the first place I went fishing from was under that bridge. Um, and then on Pine Island, Bokelia. And so kind of the top of Pine Island Sound and the bottom of Pine Island Sound. And the discharges come out right there at, at Ponarasa. And so from there, 
there would be a plume of fresh water. It's a, it's a, it's salt water there. It's it's in the incoming tide or outgoing tide to be brackish. But I mean, it's it was a plume of fresh water that was pushing outside Sanibel all the way south to Naples, wrapping around Sanibel, pushing all the way up north, all the way to Boca Grand Pass, to the point where 10 miles away from that boat ramp um, inside of Captiva Island, there was gar. There was largemouth bass. Like it was such a volume of water that just pushed this envelope of fresh water. And the immediate thing is like you're fishing. Like you can't, we bait fish a lot in Southwest Florida. You can't bring, bring pilchards back into that. You go pick up your people at the ramp. Everything's dead. Um, you, the long-term effect was a few weeks of that type of, of salinity drop to fresh. Is it all the grass dies and all the oysters die? Um, and as far as like one of the things that was significant, like with our clients was all the stuff that couldn't swim away from the freshwater, like the crabs and the conks and stuff like that was literally crawling out of the water onto the beaches and dying on the beaches. Cause they were trying to get away from the freshwater. And so the mm. beaches were just like tens of thousands of, you know, hermit crabs and conks and, and other, every kind of life that can crawl mm. and it was crawling out of the water and, and, red tide you know was was being fueled and so it was just this like just this window into what collapse would look like right what how does that fresh water and we'll get back into the to the the evolution of captains yeah but how does all that fresh water and the red tide react you know give give us an example of what you see what creates that red tide so red tide is a organism it's called Karenia brevis um and if you look at it microscopically, it's a dinoflagellate, which means it has two tails. Looks kind of like a tadpole with two tails. Um, it has a unique ability to grow from photosynthesis like a plant, as well as to take up nutrients and eat nutrients like an algae. And so it is this naturally occurring organism. But what would happen is you would get these, these massive discharges from Lake Okeechobee, which is very, very polluted with, with fertilizer, with nitrogen and phosphorus now after a century of, of runoff into that lake. And so you get this nutrient-rich, polluted plume of water that would come out and, and make contact with red tide, and it would supercharge it. It's like if you mm. had a lightning strike in a, in a forest and there's this forest fire, and then all of a sudden you let a river of gasoline flow into it. Was it was food. Mm. It was food. And it would and it would blow up into much higher levels of tic, uh, tic, tixo, tixoxity. How do you say it? Toxic, Tixo, yeah. Toxicity. Yeah. Um, much more toxic. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and uh, it would last for much longer. So you had these, these longer durations and much more toxic blooms. I remember we were over in Boca Grande, I think it was last year, and you can smell it. Yeah, I mean it wasn't even a bad red tide. You're right, but we've smell never it, you can never really it. experienced it. And Tom McGuane took us down to the beach, and he's like, "You got to smell around here." And I didn't know what he was talking about. And then you start yeah. coughing. Yep, it's a, eyes water everything. Yep, yeah, and and while that was going on, 2016, the East Coast, there was a there was a cyanobacteria bloom, blue green algae bloom on Lake Okeechobee, which is that's. That's a different, that's a freshwater algae. So, so red tide's a saltwater algae. The cyanobacteria blue-green algae is a freshwater cyanobacteria. 
and it's actually a potent liver toxin. It's It's been linked now to neurodegenerative diseases like ALS and Parkinson's and Alzheimer's. And they were, they that water that was, they dump it out the East Coast and the West Coast as like a relief valve because it no longer could flow to the Everglades. They were getting these, these blue-green algae blooms over there where it was inundating all the interior. There was a couple, <coughs> excuse me, there was a couple uh, dogs that drank the water and died, organ failure. And so this was going on on both coasts. And, and that was kind of this, it was just a perfect storm of, of, you know, this is the direction we're headed Mm -hmm. if something doesn't change. And there was anglers and just like, just like us on the West coast where there was people who had been seeing this issue for years, but they didn't have a real good outlet to be, to, to, to influence change. Same thing was happening on the East coast. The same thing existed in Florida Bay where they had lost 50,000 acres of sure. seagrass the year before. Um, and that's that's really why Captains was born. It was mm-hmm. like, look, if we can get our arms around all these people who care and are absent, maybe we can create enough pl- pr- public pressure that could influence some political will for some change. And we're going to go down that road. Let's go back to the cause. Big Sugar says, well, it might be the farmers. Farmers say Big Sugar. Where does uh, uh, Orlando fit in with the big park up there? Tell me a little bit, because the nutrients are obviously uh, used to inspire growth, mm-hmm. but the farmers have, have bad water coming off of you know where these animals live uh, and, and the population and golf courses too. Yeah. I mean- Everything. Everything. So there's, there's just- if you look at, there's so many, like Florida's like dying from a thousand paper cuts. Um, at the same time, while we, while we have all those paper cuts, there's also some like serious trauma where we're getting like broadhead through the kidney every couple of years. And that's really where, where our focus is with Everglades restoration. It's, there's all these problems. There's all these inputs to, to us, right? Our mm. own, our own yards, our own, uh, you know, septic input or, or sewage input, whatever it is. But, but when we saw collapse was when we would get these discharges right. to the East coast, to West coast. It yep. was, we still have the septic tanks and yes, they're a problem. And yes, they're an input. We still had inf- sewage infrastructure that can't handle the level of growth that we're experiencing. Those are problems, absolutely, and they need to be addressed. But when our fisheries collapsed and when our, our economy was crippled and businesses were crippled was during these discharge events. Mm-hmm. And so to look at that, um, everyone plays a role, but the, the historically the water that would fall on Florida south of Orlando, in the, it, you kind of have two ridges that run from Orlando south one that as it goes south it goes eastward and one that as it goes south it goes westward and everything in between that ridge is the Kissimmee river basin and the Kissimmee river watershed and that water flows down through the Kissimmee river chain of lakes ultimately into lake okeechobee and then historically before man went in and put his fingers on it it would overflow lake okeechobee flooding into the river of grass which is what hydrated the everglades and what ultimately would end up in florida bay where it would balance those salinities and keep keep that a brackish estuary. Um, 
where where we went in and basically stopped the flow of water at Lake Okeechobee. They dug canals through the area south of Lake Okeechobee out to the Atlantic to bleed the water out of the central Everglades, created berms and impoundments to really compartmentalize that part of the system like giant ice cube tray. And and then in order for the water to not, you know, flood the lakeside communities, they they dug uh, connected the St. Lucie River and the Caloosahatchee River as kind of these big relief valves. Mm-hmm. And so if you look at like the roles there, um, everything upstream has an, an input, but from, from the, if you're looking at pollution wise, um, phosphorus loading, the majority of that is coming from industrial agriculture. And that's just also the nature of the, the landscape there. It's like 70 plus percent industrial agriculture through that part of the basin. Um, but it's not all necessarily from today's practices. You, we might be getting phosphorus inputs from applications on that land from 50 years ago. You know, if you looked at like the methods and the science behind uh, growing back then, it was like you go put a bunch of fertilizer down and it wasn't. And I think that the advancements in technology to, to save the farmer's money, they're a lot more deliberate in, in how they apply and when they apply now. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, regardless of any of that, the, the fact is you've got, you're not meeting the, the total daily maximum load that the lake can handle in phosphorus. We're exceeding that every year. So the water coming in is not meeting the standard it needs to. And the lake itself is, has so much legacy nutrients in it and is so polluted that even if we're pouring pure drinking water into it starting today, take 50 to a hundred years for that lake to get clean. And so the only way to clean that lake, the water leaving that lake is to return it on its historic path to the Everglades, not shunting it out the St. Lucie river filter it and to filter it before we send it to the Everglades. Yeah. Let me ask you a question. This might sound stupid. If the army Corps of engineers did not build those canals going West and East out of Lake Okeechobee, but built them going South, and 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 not all the way down to Florida Bay and the Everglades, but south through the farmland south of Lake Okeechobee, would that help? So those canals already exist, um, but they exist for the purpose of irrigation for the Everglades agricultural area, which is 500,000 plus acres of land directly south of Lake Okeechobee for those that don't know. If you drive to the east coast or west coast through Clewiston, you you drive through, you know, what is the the top end of the EAA mm-hmm. today. But um it it may help like a part of the system, but I think it's very important. It is very important to look at this this system as one system. This is one giant ecosystem that existed from Orlando to Almarada. And if we if we were to look at only one part of the system, we could identify what you might think is a potential solution. Right, right. But it actually could be a death blow to another part of that system. Right. And so what I mean by that is let's say that the canals, instead of going out east and west, went out into the Atlantic. Well, you still you might reduce the discharges to the east and west coast, but you'd still be starving the Everglades of Fresh water. Fresh water. Yeah. 
Um, so it's that's really the key with Everglades restoration is that it returns that that delivery, the timing, and the conveyance of water back where it's needed. And in doing so, get you know, and we can't get it halfway there. You know, there's issues in the water conservation areas right now that it's above flood stage in this in the southern part, kind of where it butts up to US 41 Tamiami Trail. Um, so we don't want it to just get to there and stop. It has to get past Tamiami Trail all the way to Florida Bay, um, and it needs to do so at the right time of year. You know, those those conditions that are happening right now. Um, where you have these flood conditions in the in the water conservation area, that's bad for the tree islands because it gets too high. Water gets too high. It's bad for the animals, the deer and the raccoons and everything that, that live out there. Um, but it's being compounded by the way the water is being managed for the sugar industry. You know, you've got 500,000 acres of land in between Lake Okeechobee and the rest of the system that's being managed the total opposite of how the system should function. So in the dry time of year, it's being kept artificially right. wet. In the wet time of year, it's being kept artificially dry. And so if you look at this this past uh, couple months, the amount of rainfall this wet season that went into the water conservation areas, so down into where like the Miccosukee tribes live, was 37 inches of rainfall. Okay, that puts it within a normal average wet year. But then you've got 500,000 acres of sugar land north that was drained artificially dry that compounded and increased the water load by 43%, giving another 16 inches on top of that 37 inches, and it mm. put it into flood stage. Mm. And so you cannot manage this giant chunk of land in the middle of this one ecosystem differently than the rest of the ecosystem right. without it causing imbalance in the other parts of the system. And so that's what Everglades restoration is intended to fix. It doesn't get rid of the sugar industry. It just gives us more tools, gives water managers more tools in the toolbox to manage water the way that the natural system requires it. What are we doing differently than the Everglades Foundation? Um, the Everglades Foundation is, is one of our big partners. Mm -hmm. um, they, I would say, are the group that that really started this effort. Um, George Barley and sure. Paul Tudor Jones were mm -hmm. fishing buddies yeah. in Almorada, and they saw seagrass die off in Florida Bay and were alarmed. And like Daniel and I, wanted to do something about it. Only they had a lot, a lot deeper resources than right. than we did. But they started the Everglades Foundation, which back then. The difference was they were trying to figure out what's happening and why is it happening. Um, and so they're a science organization. They have some of the best wetland ecologists and Everglades scientists um, that there are on the planet. They have economists that can now track the economic impact of all this. Um, so they were really the ones to, to start and identify why is it happening, um, what needs to be done. And they were a huge piece of, of us of, of the comprehensive Everglades restoration plan existing the, what, what they do differently or what captains does differently is captains gets the people to understand the science and the system and the, and the solutions to these problems and then gives them a way to use their voice. So, I mean, look, we've all heard scientists talk, right? And generally it's, right mm -hmm. over your head it's you get in such in the weeds mm -hmm. so much that 
very hard to get people to get fired up and then take an action. Um, so what we're able to do is they provide this scientific backing to know what we're advocating for is the right thing. It's scientifically right. sound. Right. And we can take that and do a lot like what you guys do with, with Millhouse is you can tell stories about how people are impacted um, how different people from from different walks of life with different careers are impacted differently, and you can connect all back all that back to why Everglades restoration is important. And so, we give uh, we give the scientists a way to connect to the public, mm -hmm. and then we create the the conduit for the public to connect and create public pressure. And so that. That's kind of the it's a it's a perfect perfect partnership, right? There. But I think if we're if I'm not mistaken, the biggest problem, because <clears throat> if I'm not mistaken, it was Governor Bush and Bill Clinton signed a comprehensive Everglades restoration plan. Yes, and for 16 years, the South Florida Water Management District had influence from the wrong side yep and there was a big anchor that was being drug along so we couldn't really do what the plan was originally designed to do save the everglades yeah and if i'm not mistaken they had a lot of lobbyists that went into on the end of the board and had some influence through money to misdirect the water yeah really what yes so what what you have there is Everglades restoration, when, when you had this bipartisan effort with Governor Jeb Bush, President Bill Clinton, to restore the Everglades. Bipartisan support, uh, partnership between the state of Florida and the United States of America, um, a shared partnership where they would sh a cost share, 50-50. The state would pay for half. The federal government would pay for the other half. Um, and you had this this plan put together and put into law in the year 2000 that they thought would take 30 years. And it's the largest ecosystem restoration plan ever undertaken in the history of the world. So it's massive. It's a suite of projects that would take 30 years to complete. Was there a budget? Was there a number on that that was going to be allocated? Yeah, there was. And um, as, but as those projects go, everything gets more expensive. Sure. And so there's something called the IDS. It's the integrated delivery schedule. So it's basically the list of projects and what, order where they fall in their mm -hmm. construction. Um, so you have these two agencies that are responsible for whatever their portion of Everglades restoration is, which is the South Florida Water Management District on the state side, and then the Army Corps of Engineers on the federal side. And there was two big shortcomings there. Um, one, also the Army Corps of Engineers is responsible of how the water is managed, like when we send water and where we send it. And their primary responsibilities, flood control. Flood control doesn't necessarily align with what's happening environmentally. We need to dump the lake because it's too high and there's a red tide bloom on the West Coast. It's going to make it worse. So with, with having blinders on of flood control is our only responsibility, you cause greater harm in another area that's just because it's not part of your scope of responsibility. So that was a problem at the core. Problem at the Water Management District was these the the board that was directing that agency um, appointed by governors 
it was was largely influenced by sugar. Um, there was people from sugar that were on the board in the past, and so they were water was being managed, kind of prioritized, and sugar was getting the number one priority of when we get water, water supply, and they're getting the number one priority for drainage of when we get to drain our fields. And then the environment and everything else came second to that. And so for a long time, you had this water management that was favoring the sugar industry. Mm -hmm. And and the result is what we've all seen. Um, The other kind of piece to that is you're talking about massive infrastructure projects, right? You're filling in canals that are tens of miles long. You're taking down berms that are barriers to flow. You're building bridges along Tamiami Trail to let water flow past that roadway now. You're building reservoirs to store the water. You're building filter marshes to clean the water. Requires billions of dollars. And for the first 16 years of Everglades restoration, it was insignificant funding from the state and from the federal government. Sugar enjoyed that because it meant more of the same status quo, perfect growing conditions, perfect drainage conditions, the whole rest of the system suffered. And so looking at it, that's kind of where captains fit in was you have this plan that was put into place. It was a bipartisan effort. This wasn't Republicans or Democrats on opposite sides. This was everyone together saying, we're going to do this to save the Everglades, to save our, our coastal economies. And even with that happening, it wasn't moving forward at the at the rate that it was expected that 30 year time frame and the way that it was primarily being delayed was a lack of funding and so if you had the sugar industry who's one of the most powerful political lobbies in the country and in the state of Florida lobbying lawmakers to keep it the way it is the easiest way to do that is just not appropriate money to build the projects right and so for 16 years, that's that's kind of what happened. Mm. Um, and then you had water managers, um, agencies, people on the governing board at the water management district who um, were making decisions that benefited sugar and did not benefit the Everglades. I mean, that agency was literally created to restore the Everglades. So the the you know ironic to see you had a governing board there, and um, all of that changed the funding, the uh, leadership at that agency the the what was being done at that agency all of that changed when people started to get involved if we had a good filtering system which is what the river of grass is all about would it help mediate a lot of the the problems north the farming you know and and the nutrient issues the nutrients in the lake itself yeah Yeah. i mean that's that's what that's what the the uh the whole goal is at this point, you besides have to re- cut back the, the water not, to the yeah. sugar, cut them back, but it's, still. It does, so it doesn't even cut back the water they get. It just it just doesn't prioritize and give them this guarantee above everyone else. Right. Um, but yes, yeah, so it would, and that's the key to Everglades Restoration does uh, kind of two things. It cleans the water and then it conveys the water. Right. And the cleaning of the water is done through these, they're called STAs, stormwater treatment areas. People who duck hunt in Florida might know them as like really good duck hunting areas because they have a bunch of subaquatic plants that ducks like to eat. Um, but it's it's basically a marsh, a wetland right. that's man-made, that's shallow, that they put water into. The vegetation takes the nutrients up in order to grow. 
clean water comes out the other, other side of it. And those are really necessary because native vegetation, sawgrass, does not require high nutrients. Mm. And so what happens if you put high nutrient load water just into the river of grass is you get non-native plants that do thrive in high nutrient environments like cattails right. to start to choke out the sawgrass. The cattails impede water flow. They're a much denser vegetative structure, much denser root structure. So they impede the groundwater movement as well as the surface water movement. Um, and so we, through these man-made filter marshes, you can clean the water a lot more effectively with non-native vegetation like cattails and hydrilla, and then send it into the river of grass clean where it can once again flow. Hmm. So that's the problem. Let's go back to your Facebook, this rebuild captains, the birth of captains and the evolution. So, yeah. So, you know, started as a handful of fishing guides that basically were out of work because of what was happening on the water. Clients were going home. We couldn't provide the experience that our clients were paying for. You spend thousand dollars a day, $1,200 a day to go fishing needs to be good. And, um, so we got together. That's when Captains for Clean Water was born. It wasn't born with a direction of like this real defined, let's create an organization and do this. It was born under the thought of, we've got to create awareness about this problem that's happening. If you needed we, to build a megaphone. We need to build a megaphone. We've got to create awareness of what's happening if we expect people to make this a focal point. And maybe if it's loud enough, people in charge who can do something will finally do something. And so, so it started as a Facebook page and I don't know how long it was, maybe a week or two into creating this Facebook page. Um, and, and we're a few weeks into these discharges during our tourist season at this point, I'd gotten off the water and, um, Daniel called and he said, we got, uh, got word that U S sugar is holding a press conference downtown Fort Myers. And so you think about like, what's this, you know, what's big sugar who's based in Clewiston doing 80 miles to the West, holding a press conference, you know, in downtown along the Clusachi river. Um, and so we got down there and they, they had, they had received, re, uh, they had a conference room in a hotel down there that they had closed off and it was a closed door press conference. So it was Sugar's PR team and red me flag and media. Yeah, no, no public. And so we found this out and I, I pulled up down there, still had my boat behind the truck and Daniel and a few other fishing guides were standing outside there and they're like, it's closed door or whatever. I remembered that I had a card in my wallet that was a media credentials for like the national shooting sports foundation for something that I had for the TV show when I was filming at like a shooting competition. <laughs> and so I went up to the girl just working the table who's, you know, she doesn't know. And I bullshitted my way in was like, yeah, I'm media. Here's my thing. Here's my ID. And I went in I was literally in my fishing clothes did not look like media. Um, and as soon as I went in a couple of the other, a uh, couple of the news anchors who were in there, recognized me because they were doing stories on the water the last mm. couple of weeks. They kind of looked at me and got a little smirk out of them, you know, and, um, as soon as I went in the, the, um, public relations director 
from us sugar came up to me and was like who are you you know what are you doing here? oh are you media I'm like yeah yeah here's my car well who do you, who are you with i'm like oh i'm freelance you know <laughs> and so they're going and they had these charts and they're like 80 percent of the water comes from the north or 90 percent of the water comes from the north and sugar south of the lake we're not the problem the problem's north of the lake and it's like yeah the water does come from the north it always has it's that's where it's supposed to come from um but they just had for decades had got people to not be engaged by sowing confusion and it's like they don't have to get people on their side all they got to do is confuse people to not pick a side and to not get involved and just stay sitting on the sidelines. But that's also, too, the agenda of the South Florida Water uh, Management <coughs> District at times when they had a bunch of bad people on the board. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. There was, it Mixed was, stories. It was, and- it was confusion. It was, um, it was changing of agendas, you know, last minute so the sure. public wasn't there. It was, it was all these things. And so I remember in that, you know, we weren't, we weren't an organization at that point. We were just, we were still just fishing guides with a Facebook page. And, but I remember I was in there and, and I started questioning them on some of the stuff they were saying to the media, which was just cherry picking. It wasn't that it wasn't true, but it's like, yeah, the water does come from the North where it's supposed to come. What it can't do anymore is go South. Right. And you're leaving that part out of it. And so I started questioning them and, and a couple questions in, they, they shut down the whole press conference and kicked everyone out. And so then we went outside and the media followed us outside. The actual media followed us outside and started interviewing us instead of them. Perfect. That was probably the, the, the first big step. Yeah, that was that the first like created. We're, we're not intimidated by you. We're, we'll walk into your, you know, fabricated lion's den and tell you, you know, we'll call bullshit. And that was the first, first time like publicly where we were like, this is bullshit. And don't come over here and spread propaganda with the intentions of, you know, confusing people. And so, so that happened. Um, and a few days later, we thought, you know, let's, let's call a public meeting to see if we can get other people like ourselves, see what kind of appetite there is and uh, for, for people to get involved in this. And we called up, Daniel used to work at Bass Pro Shops as a, in high school or something, and, um, so we called up uh, Chuck, the manager there, and we're like, hey, can we use your conference room upstairs for a meeting? He's like, sure, no problem. You know, So we put a thing on our Facebook page, Captains for Clean Water, water quality meeting, Bass Pro Shops next Wednesday. And we're thinking like we'd get some fishing guides to show up maybe and hopefully. And um, we got there and there was like over 300 people there. It was the, the room was full. There's a line out the door. Every news station was there. There was fishing guides, but there was retired recreational fishermen. There was commercial fishermen. There was realtors. There was bartenders. There was, it was like, oh, okay. And so we went in and, and we just told about what we were seeing as guides on the water, how it was affecting us, told the story about what happened a few days prior in that press conference. They didn't the sugar industry didn't know who captains for clean water was. They didn't know who Daniel Andrews was or Chris Whitman was. They, they did after that day. Um, but that was the first time that was like, this is what's going on. And, and that, that was when we saw like, there's an appetite. There's a lot of opportunity here. People care and people want to do something. They want to see change. They don't have the mechanism to affect change. And that's what, 
that's what started us in saying we're gonna we're gonna build it. We're gonna build the mechanism. Wow. How did you evolve from there? Because here you are. You're expressing the problem and the issues, but there's no answer to how to fix it or what we want. So there was that there, come into there, play. There was the answer as far as Everglades restoration. The, right. There wasn't the answer. There wasn't action. How to fake, how to get these guys how to, to get jump them to fund board. it? Yeah. How do we get these agencies to start building these projects that are going to provide relief? And um, we met other people. After, I mean, this was like this was going on. It, it everybody cared about it. There was protests going on the bridges over here on the East Coast. There was protests going on the bridges to Fort Myers Beach and Sandoval. Hundreds of people holding signs, stop the discharges, send water south. Um, so we met a couple other people organically through that that were super engaged. A couple of uh, guys over on the West Coast who we have mutual friends with who are attorneys, who are also big anglers and divers. Um, who were standing on the bridge saying, you know, we're holding a sign. And, uh, and so we met these different people and we said, look, we've, if we're going to be effective here, we've got all these people, we have to organize them. And in order to organize them, we have to build something to organize them. We need an organization. And so for us, that's what organization meant. It didn't, we didn't know like 501c3, 501c4, mm -hmm. what it just meant. Like we need to build something that can organize people. And so we f uh, formalized an organization, Captains for Clean Water, and we built a board and figured, what, okay, well, what do we have to do to legally formalize an organization? We'd be on the news talking about these issues, and, and we'd see people in the grocery store, and they'd come up and put 50 bucks in your hand and be like, go fight for us. And it's like, well, wait, we can't just be like <laughs> yeah. taking money right. from people. Like, we need to do this the right way. Um, so we built an organization to where people could support the effort and, and we could organize people. And we, in, in order to do so, you create bylaws, you create a board, and we brought a group of people together that could help us do that. And Who knew how to do all that? Um, we had a, a couple, board member that couple came of on those a attorneys man. that were involved in the beginning, and, and they kind of, they weren't, that wasn't their uh, practice of law, mm -hmm. but they were able to research it and go, hey, set up this type of corporation for us. Right. And, um, so they helped us kind of get off the And then you have to get into the fundraising. Yeah, but that's never really Did been. Did that come easily? Yeah, it's never really been something that we don't have a big fundraising team. Um, we have- do you, we, have do you have a lot of overhead? I mean, you've we got 20 some employees, right? Yeah, we do. We have a lot of overhead. We, we In order to produce you know, the outputs from the organization to get hundreds of thousands of people involved to- we reach millions, tens of millions of people a year. Mm -hmm. It takes a lot of people to, to do all that. Yeah. Um, so we do, but the thing about this is like, this is a movement of the people funded by the people. And from the very beginning where people would walk up to us and be like, I saw you went to Tallahassee. Here's a hundred bucks for gas to today. Right. It's people who are affected collectively funding the effort for change and and that's because of that you know we don't have that standard model of like sponsorship levels mm -hmm. for outdoor brands right um we don't have like for this much you're a gold sponsor or a yeah. platinum sponsor yeah. we brands support us at whatever levels they can because it impacts their 
business. It's a village. We need everybody. Yep. And, and, I, and I say yeah. we because I'm not actively, you know, running around, but, you know, we try to voice our opinion. We try to encourage people. Uh, it's like I think the biggest victory that captains had was when you all, we all went up to Tallahassee and got DeSantis to veto the, the, the bill, uh, SB 2508. Um, so talk a little bit about that, what that bill was and how they shoved it like 12 hours before the vote, what that bill was going to mean if it was passed and how you guys got it defeated. Yeah, I think, um, that Senate bill 2508 campaign, that, that deal is the most, um, concise prime example of a proof of concept of the voice of the people being the catalyst to influence water policy. But I think it, I think we should even before we go right into that back up and look at, you know, what were these hurdles that existed prior to Captains for Clean Water? And you look at like the water management district at the the governing board at the water management district. There the people on there when when we started 2016, the the heart of Everglades restoration, the the biggest project at the heart of all those 68 projects is this EAA reservoir. It's the massive reservoir larger than Manhattan that will take water from Lake Okeechobee, clean it, store it, and then send it to the Everglades in the dry season when it's needed. That reservoir is it was going to be built, needed to be built at the bottom of the Everglades agricultural area where sugar is grown. So it's the most politically challenging of all the projects in Everglades restoration. And so for 16 years, it sat on the back burner with nothing happening. And it wasn't until 2017 on the heels of all that public pressure that was coming from the the year previous when when we were founded, 2016, that the outgoing Senate president said, I'm going to file a bill to build this reservoir. He was on his way out of office and this most politically challenging project, there was all this public support for it. And so he filed um, Senate bill 10, which was to build this reservoir. And at the time it was thought it wouldn't pass the legislatures too heavily funded by sugar, but there was so much public pressure that, um, there was such a spotlight shined on it and the media was all over it. They had to, they had to pass it and they passed it and it got signed. And then, so at that point, it's still, you have to fund that construction project year after year after year through its completion, which is, you know, probably 10 years to build that thing. And at the heart of that is the water management district that has to find the land to build the reservoir. And so throughout a process, they identified 16,500 acres, the bottom of the EAA, that this project would fit perfectly. And it was owned, the land was owned by the state of Florida, owned by the taxpayers, but had been leased to the sugar companies, to, to Florida Crystals, to grow sugar. Well, the leases were about to run out in like the, at, at, at like in January, the beginning of the year, the next year. And we're in like, I think it was November and so this all of a sudden this agenda item comes up there's board meetings every month for the water management district and at nine o'clock at night for that november meeting we get a a call uh hey they added this agenda item to renew the leases on the land where the reservoir needs to be built they did it the day before so no 
due process as far as public notice. And so Daniel and I quickly, you know, mobilized to go over, come over here to West Palm Beach for the, for the governing board meeting. And we got halfway over here and got a call, said they moved the meeting from the water management district headquarters down to Miami. <laughs> and so, oh my God. yeah, so we, and these things start at, you know, eight o'clock in the morning. So we hung a right on 27 and hauled ass down and we, we got there and, um, that was when we were like, why we questioned, why is this added to the agenda? It's November. This thing doesn't, the leases don't expire for several more months. Why not have some more time to review? Like, what are the terms of these new leases? Are they like month by month? Is it another 10 year lease, a 20 year lease? Is it going to cost the taxpayers millions of dollars to break the lease? Is it going to delay the construction of this reservoir project? Like, why are we doing this? Why is this all of a sudden put on the agenda? And the board, um, you know, it's a it's a one way conversation. You're testifying to them in public comment. They don't have to answer your questions. Mm. And so we voiced our concerns. Um, this this is after this is uh, 2019. Mm-hmm. You know, the that project had been it gone from we're going to build it to. And we're going to fund it. Now, where do we build it? Here's where we build it. And then all of a sudden we think we're about to start this project and, and this thing gets added to the agenda. And, um, Congressman Brian Mast, a congressman from the East coast over here, uh, actually drove down to that same meeting was asked by governor elect Ron DeSantis at the time. So he wasn't in office yet, but he had won his election was asked to attend and, and ask them to postpone the vote so that they could review the terms of what was going on here. And even though you had an incoming governor via a sitting congressman asking this governing board to postpone the vote for another month, the thing the things don't expire for a couple months, postpone the vote, they unanimously voted to renew the leases anyway. And that was a huge, like, why would you do this? It was, it was such obvious corruption. And so over the course of the next 30 days until the next governing board meeting of that agency, um, they had lined up a, a, a media opportunity where they said, the reason we're doing this is that we negotiated with crystals to get access to the land immediately to start construction. And if we don't let them continue to farm until we are ready to build, the land will go fallow, which means it'll grow weeds on it instead of sugar. Like big, big deal. What does that matter? Hmm. And so we're like, what, this just doesn't make sense. And so they had a bunch of media out to the site where they had these two big D eight cat bulldozers, front end loaders, and they were scraping topsoil. And they said, look, because we did this, they've already let us on the land and we started construction and, and they had media out there and tell them, this is why we did this. This is why we renewed the leases. And it's like, that just does not add up, dude. Mm-hmm. And so we went flying, borrowed a plane from a board member and went flying over the area that they apparently started construction and they had scraped 80 acres of topsoil and there was no more construction equipment. There was no porta potties. There was no workers. There was nothing. They did this, one day photo op with the media that said this is why they did it and then they returned the equipment and so between there and the next board meeting um there was uh public information requests and we found uh 
the rental agreement for that equipment that was only rented for one day at the cost of like $80,000. Wow. And if you're going to do, if you're starting construction, you're going to need to quit more in one day. And then we found internal email from the uh, council at the district to the board saying, I've tweaked some of the language and to, to make it look like we did this to expedite construction instead of doing Florida crystals a favor. And so when we went to that next board meeting, um, we were armed with this information and they were again, justifying why they did it. And as they're doing so, fishing guides and people, business owners in the back of the room were mumbling under their breath and whatever. And one of the board members from the dais asked if, said she would appreciate it if the peanut gallery would keep it down. That was Melanie Peterson. It was. And so uh, naturally, as we all went up to do our public testimony, we let them know that we we're proud members of the peanut gallery. And we read the internal communications um, that said, this is exactly what you guys are doing and shined a huge spotlight on the, the corruption there. And um, in doing so, built that public pressure, which is what Captains for Clean Water was built to do. We created public pressure. And, and uh, when DeSantis took office in his first 24 hours, he demanded the resignation of that entire governing board. But I think during that original conference, you demanded their res- resignation. I did. I don't. I was also. I, I don't have any power to I, do so. I, but I, I a, and I am a and I am a proud member of the peanut gallery, and I demand your resignation. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, 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 it doesn't have any uh, doesn't have any merit, but I demanded it. Oh. Were you scared when you got those words out? No, no, I was pissed off, man. I was freaking. Yeah, you had pissed. so much was, fuel. It was awesome. Yeah. And I've you, never been scared in this. Just angry. Especially when you're talking to liars. Yeah. 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 Just angry. But so that that was the first test of what we believed was if the public was involved, change would happen. Mm-hmm. And that was the first proof of that was, was that changing of that governing board, that agency. And um, that was, that was, that showed us like, we're right. If the public gets involved and stays involved and we got to figure out how to keep them involved for who knows how long, 20 years, forever. Yeah. Um, but that's what's been missing. And and so that was the first proof. And then you kind of, there's been successes since then, but then you get to that Senate bill 2508 where all this progress, you get this new governing board who's now making good decisions and, and good rules to advance Everglades restoration you get funding for that EAA reservoir project. It's now dedicated money to build this project. And all of a sudden on a Friday night after hours, this bill gets filed by Senate leadership on behalf of sugar. That is a conforming bill to the budget. So it's attached to the budget and it would take, it had all these repercussions to all this progress that the people have made in the last six years. And it would take the rulemaking ability of that governing board and make it to where they had to have their, their rulemaking ability approved by the state legislature who sugar can influence. Um, it would take the way that the reservoir is the waters operated and would give priority to the sugar industry, basically giving them access to the water before water would be available to the environment. Um, and then it took the funding to build the reservoir that was dedicated for that one project. It would make it available to use on other projects. So you you defund the project by spending the money on something else. Hmm. And so 
this bill was filed. Um, when it was filed, it was invincible. The, the, the word on the street in Tallahassee was it's unbeatable. It's an invincible bill. It is filed by Senate leadership. It's being delivered and put forth by the largest political stakeholder in the state of Florida, Big Sugar. And it's being done so as a conforming bill to the budget. So it's not going through the normal bill process of all these opportunities for public engagement, all these different committee stops for amendments. It's going to go see an appropriations committee, and then it's going to go from there to the Senate floor. They were hiding that incredibly well. And and it, it, it's three-dimensional chess, and it was a strong chess move. Um, in addition to that, it, because it was a conforming bill, it was attached to the governor's budget. So it wasn't as easy as him coming in and vetoing the bill because he didn't veto the budget. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we launched – a massive campaign. You guys were part of that. Um, and, and if people look at what's the importance of educating people on what's going on in between these times of crisis, that's, that was the, the proof of that. We, this was now, um, this was now what, 2022. We hadn't had a water crisis since 2018. So people were not standing on bridges with protest signs anymore because the water's being managed a little bit better. Mother Nature cooperated the Mm -hmm. last few years. And we were still able to activate people because of their level of understanding and knowledge on this issue. If they weren't educated on this issue, we could have ring all the alarm bells we want about a bad bill. Nobody's canceling charters and driving to Tallahassee Nobody's sending emails to congressional members or to, to uh, their state representatives. But because of all that work we had done over the past years, when we rang that alarm bell, um, the people showed up. Mm-hmm. You know, 55,000 people took action in, or 50,000 people took action over a two week period, a 55 day campaign yeah. total. Um, you know, hundreds of people showed up to Tallahassee with like you guys, you know, we had fishing guides that canceled charters with their clients. A lot of them had to pay for their clients plane tickets back home because they flew down here to fish. And they said, dude, you got to go back home. I got to go to Tallahassee. So, I mean, collectively the fishing guides we calculated, they gave up over $300,000 in, in charters to go to Tallahassee to talk for 30 seconds. It's unbelievable. And, um, that public pressure um, created such an environment in Tallahassee that that the Senate amended their own bill without negotiations from us, without negotiations from the governor. They amended the bill on their own. They removed the language tying it to the budget, which made it vetoable. And then um, the uh, the kind of the the word up there was, you know, there's what thirty five hundred bills filed in a session. They were like. The only bill they're talking about is 25 weight. Mm-hmm. You guys are burning this town to the ground. Like it's, it's chaos up here. And we launched, uh, we launched a campaign. Um, so first we launched a campaign. We went up, all the fishing guides were talking, trying to testify. And they were saying, you don't know what you're talking about us. We, we made a video called kill bill, kill the bill mm-hmm. as a parody off of kill bill. Mm-hmm. And, um, we made this film and, and, uh, we made it using some of the footage from the Florida channel, which is a taxpayer funded channel that's run by the Senate. And we used footage from that channel that we pay for in this film. And we got a cease and desist from the Senate 
threatening criminal charges for using using their property. That's um, awesome. Yes. That's awesome. So, um, you know, we took that we did the logical thing and we made Kill the Bill Volume 2. <laughs> <laughs> and um, we just turned up the heat, man. And mm-hmm. they're trying to censor us and we made that censored campaign where everybody would be holding fish and instead of the fish, you'd put a censored bar over it. And we just we just built the biggest campaign that we've ever built. And um, 55 days later, that bill was vetoed and we achieved what we were told was impossible even four years after a water crisis. So um, that was that was something that just, you know, seven years in now it shows like this is what was missing. Mm-hmm. The first 16 years, this is the people or the what was missing. Was that the greatest victory by far? Yeah. Yeah, I had to admit. Yeah. So what happens now? They got it vetoed. So what's happening with the reservoir? It's under construction. And all that. Yep. You're under, moving forward. It's under construction. There's uh, record funding from the state, record funding from the federal government. The filter marsh portion of the reservoir, the 6,500-acre filter marsh is uh, nearly complete. It'll be operational by beginning of next year. The uh, Army Corps is about ready to award the contracts for the embankment project, which is the largest single contract the Army Corps has ever awarded in the history of the Army Corps of Engineers. Um, so, yeah, it's being built. That's awesome. What, what would have happened without Captains for Clean Water? I don't know. Right? <laughs> I don't know. And, no, and I think... Not without Captains for Clean Water, because but the Everglades it's without the people. It's, the without, people. it's without the people that took action. Well, it's, the people are the Captains for Clean yes. Water. When I say Captains yeah, for Clean Water... People. It's not it, the organization. It's, 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 it's the, the army. Yeah, yes, it's the absolutely movement. it is. Because the Everglades Foundation wasn't doing that. Yeah, that's not what they do. They were very involved. And right. they were up there. They have lobbyists. They were up there pushing. But you got Senate leadership that put in a forth a bill. And for a sugar industry that has 72 lobbyists... You know, that's handing out millions of dollars in campaign contributions. The only thing that stopped that bill was public pressure. Mm-hmm. That was the only remedy. We're not going to go dollar for dollar. We're not, there is no other lobbyists to hire. The sugar industry hired them all. You know, it's, right. yeah, that, that was, and, and that's what we have. That's our power. It's David versus Goliath and it's a collective. That's, that's our power. You know, cause originally I was thinking, because we have Bumfish Tarpon Trust, they do their thing with habitat and fish restoration and, mm-hmm. and, and the you know the healthy environment with you know with the fishermen. Science, science, but it's based on science, and and they are awesome. The Everglades Foundation, they are awesome, and Captains for Clean Water, and I think that they work better independently, don't you? And because well, we were thinking about why don't we all just come together and have one big organization? No, you can't have one big organization, but we do have to work together. We have to have a coalition of organizations that are looking and using the assets and the resources um, that each organization has in order to advance Everglades restoration. Because the reality is if, if we don't restore the Everglades and we don't stop the discharges to the coasts, we can do all the other stuff we want. We can do all the science we want. We can do all the studies we want. The, the fisheries will collapse. And so right. we. It, it's very important. The work that all these other organizations do in the outdoor space and even outside of Florida is critical work. Um, but 
and, and it's not like we all have to try to do all the like captains doesn't need to do science also right. but we have to coalesce around each other especially when it comes to policy that will affect the work of every organization um and when it comes to everglades restoration when there is a when there is a calling all light the bat signal moment like 2508 everybody has to mobilize and it you know it's a similar thing to that is even though it may not be everglades restoration may not be like the direct mission of every other organization when when the alarm bells hit when catastrophe hits we need to be able to we need to have enough of a coalition with other organizations that they can pivot off what their normal everyday mission is and weigh in on this one. And and a a good example of that is like the hurricane stuff. And when we get by the hurricanes, captains for clean water since the beginning of the organization has activated on hurricane relief. Hurricane relief is not in the mission of our organization, but it's something that when the catastrophe hits the core of our community of the, the angling community gets impacted. And even though it's not our main mission, we have to temporarily activate on this catastrophe. And it's the same thing with Everglades restoration. When there's a water crisis or there's a political crisis, that's going to affect this. Everybody needs to plug in. Yeah. No, it's just, um, what you guys have done is just is fascinating to watch and, and to see how it, how, how it's evolved and how successful you guys have been. And we've got a big uh, gala Friday night over yeah. there near Naples, and we can't wait to be over there to help celebrate you guys. It's going to be amazing. Yeah. It's going to be amazing. Uh, is there anything you'd like to add to this conversation? Um, I mean, as far as like Captains for Clean Water goes, uh, it's, it's, very, it's an inspiring place to be, but I, I think it's really important to realize like this isn't happening. These things aren't happening because of me and Daniel. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, they're happening because of the volume of people and the amount of people that are being willing to take their time, um, their talent, their treasure, and in some way support the movement and be involved and be engaged and use their voice. Um, give us the resources to build a team, um, where that team can reach millions of people and and it's about taking time to to actually try to help add their voice to this fight and it is working and that's that's what's important it doesn't matter who's at the helm of it Mm -hmm. um, or the name of the organization or anything else what matters is that people around the world are plugged in and doing their part when it's when their voice is needed and that's that if that stops all this progress stops so that's really, really important. Do you ever see yourself becoming that fishing guide uh, that you once were again? Or is this your new dream come true, your passion that drives you every waking moment of the day? It's probably more meaningful. I mean, this is definitely my passion. Um, I, I, my personality is like, I, um, I like to like, try to perfect something as much as I can and then and then try to move on to something else that I that I haven't perfected and try to perfect it uh, like a lot like hunting and fishing mm-hmm. you like being a beginner yeah I just like and that figuring it yeah, out try to figure out and so who knows like I, I would ideally I would see I, the ideal scenario is we get to a place where captains for clean water is not needed 
I don't think that's reality. Um, I think, unfortunately, we're going to have to fight for this type of thing forever. And there's other water issues around the country and around the world that captains could plug this same model into if we if we grew to to be able to have that kind of bandwidth. Um, but as far as like being able, like even if the organization could operate and didn't require, you know, all of my time, I don't know that I, that it, it would mean go back to being a guide for one. It took me 16 years to build that guide career and I would be starting over. I mean, right. I don't have clients. But <laughs> you, gonna, away. you go fishing, <laughs> but you won't be a guide. Yeah. Um, but but I would, I would see, you know, I think that what we've learned and are continuing to learn through this process, we could be value in consulting to other organizations or movements that are um, facing similar challenges. Um, I don't know. I have a, I have a two-year-old baby boy, and I'd like to show him things of the world that I love. So I don't know. I don't know, man. But like... You know, I think as far as captains goes, it's it's hard to say. I'm, my focus is I got my head down. Mm-hmm. Our whole team is goes into the office every day with passion and and is grinding. And and there is no way to see when that finish line is for us. We know it's way far out there, but yeah. we see the light at the end of the tunnel with it. And it's, uh, how could when, all of our how could all of our viewers get involved? Um, the biggest thing is the biggest value that like you know listeners here or consumers of any of the products with, you know, companies that support us like Yeti and Costa and stuff like that is, um, to come into the organization. It's, it's, it's bringing people into the funnel where we can then educate them and get them to be an advocate and join their voice. So, you know, joining our, joining our email list, signing up your email doesn't cost a dime. Um, you could become a member. You can donate to the organization to help fund the efforts. It's any number of ways that people can plug in. Um, but the big one is like come into the organization. Let uh, Give us a way to contact you so that we can educate you and so that we can let you know when we need your voice. We need you to send this email or we need you to make this phone call or we need you to drive to Tallahassee. Whatever you can do, as busy as you are in your life, we have a way for you to plug in. You can, we, when, when a 2508 2.0 happens, we have a way that you can send an email to your representative and take you less than 30 seconds. When's the podcast coming? You guys should have a podcast. You know, we've actually talked about that for a long time. We've kicked around names, you know, like we, we have podcast equipment. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I don't know. Eventually it's, we're, we're at a place. Yeah. We're at a place where we're constantly, um, we're, we're still a young, small organization, um, in, in the grand scheme of things. And so we're in a constant place of, of, of capacity and everybody's at the rev limiter, you know, in our whole team. And so it's like, where, where do we fit these in, in a priority? Um, But as we grow, as we get more resources, as we get, uh, you know, a, a bigger team and, and more capacity, that's definitely something that I think would be long format you know we do a lot with tiktok and Mm -hmm. instagram and giving people bits of information in you know five seconds and but to boil down the largest restoration project in the world opportunities like this long format conversations are certainly valuable and i think that would be a great tool in the future 
Well, Chris, well, thanks we'll, so much, man. We'll see you on Friday. Yeah, All looking right, forward pal. to it. Thanks thank, for taking the time to come over so here. No, yeah. I, yeah. I, it's been an honor. Thank you, buddy. Thank you, guys. And thank you for coming to uh, New York two weeks ago. Of course, that was my pleasure. You're a good pal. Thank you. Learning from Chris Whitman and the organization Captains for Clean Water has to be one of our most important podcasts we've ever done. If you'd like to learn more about the ongoing issues and battles they're facing, please check them out at captainsforcleanwater.org. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you want to see more content or behind the scenes, please follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. We'll see you again soon.